I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astell. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 84, we read The Revolt of the Public by Martin Gurry, published in 2014. Martin Gurry is a former CIA analyst specializing in the relationship of politics and global media. His book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium, the book we're reading today, was first published in 2014 and updated in 2018. It's been praised for foreshadowing the political shocks of Brexit and the rise of Donald Trump. Mr. Gurry has published numerous articles, studies, and opinion pieces on geopolitical and media-related topics. His blog, called The Fifth Wave, pursues the themes elaborated in the book we're going to talk about today. So, Gurry says, There's an old, entrenched social order that's passing away, one that's rooted in the hierarchies and conventions of industrial life. As the amount of information available to the public has increased, the authoritativeness of any one source has decreased. My thesis, he says, is a simple one. The information technologies of the 21st century have enabled the public, composed of amateurs, people from nowhere, to break the power of the political hierarchies of the industrial age. The result hasn't been a complete revolution, but a prolonged period of instability. If my thesis is true, he says, we've entered a historical period of revolutionary change that cannot achieve consummation. Institutions will be drained of trust and legitimacy but will continue to survive in a zombie-like state. Governments get toppled or voted out, but they're just replaced by their mirror images. Hierarchies are brought low, but refuse to yield the illusion of top-down control. So he says, the story I want to tell is a simple one. It has many conflicting viewpoints. It concerns the slow-motion collision of two modes of organizing life. One, this is the historical, is hierarchical, industrial, and top-down, and the other is what's emerged in the in these last several years. It's networked, egalitarian, and bottom-up. And he calls this a collision between the two because there's, he says there has been wreckage and not just in a figurative sense. Yeah, I, I, I thought this was a, a really interesting way of looking at it. And it's one that, I mean, we, we talk about how there's more sources for news now. There's more sources for ideas now. He kind of takes that to a bigger level. And says, you know, everything that came before the system that you and I grew up with and that had been around for a hundred years or more before that was a product of the Industrial Revolution. You know, the idea of one big authority, one big product, one big thing, and it gets distributed to the people. And you think of that, that's the Soviet model, you know, one big factory that makes the same thing every day. But it's kind of what our companies were doing, too. You know, I mean, there was there weren't as many choices of everything. You know, you just got what you got. And like they were aiming at the mass market the middle of the market and trying to really make the people fit that you know they um like it seems like when you go to the supermarket you see this there's a million kinds of everything now you know like when we were kids there was one kind of cheese it mm-hmm. now there's like 20 cheese it's you know and for every kind of taste but you know nabisco or whoever makes it wasn't doing that in the 80s they were doing you know this is the cheese it 
You know, it's it's the median amount of cheese that the average American consumer wants to eat in a cracker. That's it. And it was like that with politics, too. I mean, everyone was sort of aiming at the, the vast middle. What's interesting about that is, you know, framing it as Guri does as a part of the Industrial Revolution makes you think the pre-industrial world kind of bears some resemblance to what is going on now. You know, you, a million different sources of information, a million different sources of employment and ways of working and ways of living. That was that was the case in every different town and village across civilization because there was nothing that could unite them. There's no telegraph and telephone. And, mm-hmm. you know, they might have the same king down in London or Paris or wherever, but every place was a little different. And that's kind of what we're getting back to today, except instead of it being based on your geography, it's based on, you know, subreddits or like whatever different social media group you fall into, which is, so it's still weird and new, but it, the sort of diffuse nature of, of everything, including authority itself, that to me, it, the way he, the way Guri describes it made me think that's, that's actually sort of medieval. Yeah. So the way he describes sort of the modern era, he, he uses words like authority, like hierarchy, things that you empower, what you've just described. Mm-hmm. And for him, that it, it's not so much uh, fascist as, you know, that's what comes to mind, but it's more like in the news business, it was hierarchical because the New York Times brought to you the all the news that's fit to print, and that was enough, and that's what you got. And Walter Cronkite said, that's the way it is. You know, he, he presented the news, and everyone sort of accepted that that's, that's the way it was. Mm-hmm. And political parties... They had actual, there was an actual establishment that would make decisions in back rooms and make decisions about what's good for everyone and what's good for the party and that sort of thing, where you had actual elites who would make decisions and the public would just kind of go along with it, kind of trust it, you know, World War One or World War Two, and prior to that, I mean, really prior to Watergate, the yeah, kind of American public was more or less accepting to well, you know, they've they the the elites. Well, they went to these fancy schools and they've they're technocrats and they've spent their whole life like working in this particular area. They should know what they're talking about. And so he said, power from our perspective up to this point has been a particular alignment between the will of the elites and the actions and opinions of the public, and it's a matter of trust, faith, and fear. He says. So you had a situation where. You just kind of trusted and people who were in charge or in places of power. And it's not a, we're not talking about a, you know, a grand conspiracy so much as, you know, the elites kind of ruled the country and, and, uh, that includes the, our access to news and our access to information. And it was much easier for the government to hide information. And most of America didn't know that FDR needed crutches and, you know, use a wheelchair to move around. And obviously that's just laughably impossible in, in today's client, you know, today's uh, media environment. But so what he's basically saying is what's changed is that hierarchical access to information, that hierarchical sort of, you know, all of the local newspapers took, took their cues from whatever the New York times printed. That's just not, not a thing anymore. Now people have access 24 hours a day to the, the, the whole of, you know, human knowledge in their, mm-hmm. on their iPhone, you know? And, um, and so it's, it's now completely impossible to maintain that, that information hierarchy where you could, 
just give the, you know, the people, if, if we didn't trust what they, what they would do with it, we only give them this much and, you know, they'd sort of live with it. But that I, but at this point it's no longer possible. So we really are talking about completely different worlds. And, and his argument is going to be that with the hierarchy falling down, it's not that the, the masses or the, the chaotic public takes its place so much as nothing takes its place. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. I mean, you might've had, <clears throat> I think there were technological limitations in the old days that, that reinforced this thing. You know, there was how many channels could you fit on the TV dial? Not that many, you yeah. know, so you'd, you'd have the big three. That was it. You know, you'd have how many daily newspapers could operate in one town. It was more than it is now, but it was still limited. You might, you know, Philadelphia had a conservative paper and a liberal paper back in those days. Uh, that was, those were the two choices though. And a lot of times they overlapped because there was more of that sort of centrist, uh, overlap, that sort of median opinion, non-ideological, uh, expertise, the, you know, an elite class, like you were saying, people who, you know, the, the tops of both of the parties, they, they went to the same schools, you know, they, uh, they belong to the same clubs. There wasn't really room for anything else. Then, you know, you get to today and it's, it's just, it's so easy. Anybody can, I mean, look, we're, you're listening to, you know, political discussion right now that couldn't have happened right. 20, 20 years ago. And now, and there are, there are a million other podcasts like it, although none is good. I'll say that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing. Um, and he, he, Gory kind of applies that 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 the nature of that authority that the news business had and, and puts it in other ways too and you know corporate authority institutional authority and even governmental authority mm-hmm. and I think I think Watergate you, you mentioned is a good kind of breaking point because for for years before that there wasn't much in the way of even third parties outside of uh, segregationist parties you know uh, and that was a, a sectional issue. But there, there wasn't real, you know, you didn't see libertarians and greens and whatnot until later. There was communists, but nobody voted for them. So it was that sort of median nature of the American populace. And, and he goes into what, what it means to be the public, you know, the, a group of people interested in an issue. It, um, it is vastly changed by just the technological revolution. And in a way that once that monopoly is broken, you know, of the establishment, how do you get it back? Is it possible ever to get it back? And I, he doesn't seem to suggest that it is. I, I can't see how it is either. Yeah. And to take a step farther than just authority, I mean, he spends a lot of time talking about how essentially the public has completely lost trust. So the access to more information has clarified the situation and the public is no longer trusting because they, I guess they just see, see past the the facades or you know there's no question that in congress the introduction of c-span cameras fundamentally changed what was happening on the the house floor in particular but also the senate floor i mean that used to be a place where they would actually debate with one another have conversations and uh, the introduction of the c-span cameras both on the floor and in committee changed it from uh changed it from a a venue to, you know, debate and discuss, changed it into a venue of performance. And this is my opportunity to speak to a much larger audience. I'm not trying to convince my colleague across the aisle. Instead, I'm going to ignore him, speak over his head 
directly to the the viewers and and so suddenly it even uh, committee hearings which ostensibly or originally were meant for fact finding and discussion and learning and you bring the bring in these witnesses so that you can actually learn from them ask them questions that you don't know the answer to these yeah. days with the internet you're not asking anybody that you don't know the answer to and you're not even invite and in, going to invite anyone to a committee hearing unless you know exactly how they're going to answer and they're going to answer exactly like you want them to so it's a pure performance it's produced you know <laughs> in order to mm-hmm. make a statement and 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 uh, send a message versus when things were behind closed doors it, it was much easier to kind of on the one hand the critique would be we used to be able to have you know bipartisan debate and discussions behind closed doors and come to negotiated deals and that sort of thing. But now you can't. Of course, the other side of that is it used to be the case that you'd have these backroom deals that were negotiated in the dark (laughs) of night and now you can't. (laughs) So there's a flip side. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more open. And we always thought, you know, sunshine's the best disinfectant and everything like that. You know, people think that people, people hate the idea of secrets that they can't see. You know, Wilson talked about, uh, open covenants openly arrived at no more secret treaties ruling the world but when you get to, yeah when you get to that in congress it's there's no room for compromise there's no and it's it's disappointing because and there's again i don't know how you turn back from that you could take the cameras out that would help what well also what he what, what gurry talks about too is he kind of categorizes this all as the center versus the uh the factions the sects at the at the fringe and he sees a lot of the uh, the Arab Spring stuff, and you know, the, and sort of the more recent populist outbreaks that this book sort of predicted, whether it be you know Trumpism or BLM or any sort of you know uprising that was not predicted and not controlled by the center. He sees that as the same sort of uh, sectarian movement, where the people, and he, you know, he talks about the Tea Party in the same way. The people in the Tea Party were mad at. Obamacare and and the way the the recession was dealt with and, you know, the bailouts, the TARP and all that. But they didn't all agree on an answer. And it was the same with Occupy Wall Street. I remember thinking this at the time. So, yeah, they're they're real mad. I can tell. They don't like capitalism. They're occupying that park in New York. But what do they want? What are their demands? And Corey makes the point is they don't have demands. They don't want to rule. They just want to either tear down what is ruling or at least express their contempt for what is ruling. You know, it's, it's not, and that's hard to get your head around if you, if you're interested in policy, because I, I, I think usually it used to be that a protest would be against a thing, but also for another thing, you know, it was, civil rights protests were against the way black people were being mistreated in the South, especially, but they also had, things they wanted like the right to vote you know the desegregation in in various uh businesses and and, you know equal access to things you know basically to be treated equal that's a platform that you can understand what a lot of the the more recent ones it's it's just um well i mean he he calls it nihilistic and it, it is it's just it's not standing for anything it's just standing against and the way he phrases that kind of made it make more sense to me is that that's what these people want it's um the people who occupy, who were in Occupy Wall Street and were so full of unhappiness about the system, but didn't have any system they wanted to replace it with. It wasn't that they're purely anarchists. It's just that they don't necessarily agree on all of, any of it, except that what is 
what is in place now is bad. Beyond that, who can say? Yeah, he calls that negation, or these are movements of negation. He says, the seductive appeal of the Tea Party movement, like that of the Occupy Wall Street, who were to follow, was the joy of negation, of bringing down the roof on the temple of political authority. Beyond a fundamentalist respect for the Constitution, this is what you were just saying, any positive proposals inspired either lack of interest or fractious disputes, which is honestly incredibly insightful in 2014 because that was still pre-Trump. It wasn't long after the Tea Party where I'll tell you, I believe that the Tea Party really was, was a movement about government spending and government overreach. I did but too. I, yeah. I think we learned from from the Trump years and since that that's really not what the Tea Party was about. <laughs> it was really about I'm mad as hell and I'm <laughs> and I'm not going to take it anymore. And um, he says, as in every other recent uprisings of the public against authority, um, these rebels didn't belong to the proletariat or the downtrodden, nor were they untutored know nothings. They came from the affluent middle class. I mean, this is a point to be made. This is also, uh, you know. Karl Marx and, and Engels too, that it's, it's actually not the proletariat. It's actually the affluent middle class that, that ends up um, c- causing the, you know, standing up and wanting revolution. He says, Tea Party shock troops appeared to be somewhat better educated, wealthier, whiter, and older than the average American. And uh, the Tea Party was about personal liberty. Oh, so, and he contrasts the two the, between uh, Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street. Uh, just to make your point again about how they really couldn't agree on anything. Both of them were movements of negation. He'll say movements really about just being angry at the elites, at the hierarchy, at the so-called experts. But Tea Party had a little bit more of a personal liberty bent while Occupy Wall Street was more about social and economic justice. And I love this line. He says, each really, in a sense, was the beast in the other's nightmare. (laughs) The living <laughs> yeah. horror of their country seemed to be on the verge of becoming. And I mean, they, they, of course, they used each other as caricatures and still do. I mean, we still do like say we wouldn't say Occupy Wall Street is the is the the other the nightmare. But, you know, like the these guys who who push uh, social justice and CRT and these things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's um, I think this is not the first there is in history a long cycle of the comfortable center and the people at the fringe being in opposition. I mean, you see it in like the Mongol hordes that took over China. You know, China was richer, uh, more educated, more, you know, had all the resources, but they were soft. And the Mongols, they were hard and, and they were mad and they wanted what other people had. There was a, there was a, a medieval uh, Arab author called Ibn Khaldun who wrote about this in, in, uh, about the 1300s about how Bedouin tribes would do the same sort of thing. You know, there'd be a, some emirate that was wealthy and, you know, the tribes out in the desert would look on it and say, yeah, we, we can take them. There were fewer of them. They weren't as rich, but they were, they were tough and they had that, that, that drive and they took it. And then, you know, they were in charge and then, you know, their, their grandsons became the same thing as the people they took over. They got weak and, you know, sort of decadent and, you know, used to all the, the privileges and because it's a lot nicer in a, in a city than living out on the steps and having to hunt for your every meal. I think that populism kind of embodies that same thing. It's, it's not necessarily ideological. And that's why populists in the 19th century were tended to be left-wing, whereas now they're tend to be right-wing. It's because it's, it's, 
it's something outside of left and right. It's about in and out. It's about who's running things. And once those people running things start to fail and fail publicly and openly, then it really excites those populists, uh, animal spirits, you know, it really, and, and Guri talks about this when we, you know, with the crash of 08, you know, up until that point, you know, from since the crash of 87, it had been pretty smooth sailing. And there was a lot of talk about how the Fed had basically conquered all these problems. You know, there wasn't right. going to be inflation. There was no more business. Cycles. No, we, it, it was over. Greenspan had it in the bag. And then not only did it crash hard in 08 and, and that radicalized people. I mean, I, I got laid off in 08 while my bosses got bonuses. And I, I, I get it. Um, it was not a pleasant time if you were entering the workforce. But that also kind of the way it failed, just the sort of dumb, risky investments that people were doing with borrowed money. Once that all gets exposed, and it did get exposed because there was now a, a greater multiplicity of news sources and analysts out there telling people, hey, this is what went wrong. Regular guy can look at that and say, "Wait, they were doing what? I thought these guys were in charge. I thought they knew everything yeah, and, yeah. and had to. That they've got the degrees from Harvard and Yale. I, how you know? I'm I'm just a you know a regular guy, but I could tell that's a bad idea. And that that shatters that authority, and then kind of it it, it really just makes that populist cycle go into overdrive because now now you got people who wouldn't normally be up in arms about things because the up until that point, things had been pretty good. And they say, wait a minute. These people have been telling me for years they've got it all figured out. And they don't know anything better than I do. So why should yeah. they be in charge? And so many levels, too, when it comes to the financial crisis. I mean, I, I probably shared in the same anger, why didn't any of these guys go to jail? Well, none yeah. of them actually committed. They didn't actually commit crimes. It was just crimes of, you know, just greed and avarice and just complete disregard and at multiple levels. So you can always point the finger. You know, the the Fed, he says, is encouraged a casino atmosphere by flooding the markets with easy money. Lehman Brothers took that money and leveraged it to the moon, you know, betting, you know, $30 for every dollar they actually held. The rating agencies like Moody's and S&P designated uh, these government investments as AAA, even though they were subprime. You know, then uh, then you had, so you have the local banks who are, who are offering these, these variable rate arms that that were interest only loans for the first f- three or four years, and then after that had absolutely ballooning payments, and then you had people who were buying houses that they couldn't afford or taking out uh, equity from their houses and using it as basically a a, a a cash machine to just use for consumer spending: a new car, a bigger, and a, a new bedroom, a new kitchen, you know these types of things. But at every level, people, the experts, the folks who were not just in charge, but we trusted to, you know, entrusted our, you know, kind of the, the livelihood, they failed at every level. And at every level, they, none of them said, you know, like, hey, my bad. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Instead, each one of them just pointed to the other level and said, well, they're the ones who did that. You know, mm-hmm. Republicans will say, well, it was the Community Reinvestment Act that, that forced people to, that forced the banks to, to, give loans to people who weren't credit credit worthy. But then you have Democrats saying like you have these banks like attacking people with predatory loans and tricking them into taking these payments that they know they can't pay for in three years when the, when they balloon, you know, at, at every level they failed. And at every level they pointed the finger and said, Oh, it wasn't me. It was someone else. 
So the public looks at this and is just like, these guys are just a bunch of liars and cheats out for themselves. And then they give themselves bonuses while people lose their homes. And even if people, there were so many people who maybe, you know, definitely there were so many people who took out loans that they couldn't afford, or they tried to flip a house just because they were, they're playing, you know, trying to play a uh, real estate investor and that sort of thing. So these are not all completely sympathetic characters, but you kind of get why there would be some real anger of like, you guys get off scot-free and we lose our house. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and every step of the way, the government was encouraging this sort of go-go inflationary, easy money, free money, go for it attitude. I mean, even like after 9-11, a lot of people thought, well, maybe this will be like World War II where we all had to sort of scrimp and save and buy liberty bonds and recycle more. But instead, the government just uh, go out and spend more, support the economy. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, it's, there's something to that. I mean, we, you know, it was, you wouldn't want everyone to just hold on to the money because uh, then businesses would go under and nobody would be selling anything. But it seemed like there was no come together. It was just do more, do more business. I also understood the kind of overlap between Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party was uh, they both hated crony capitalism. Yeah, yeah, it was just that the the Wall Occupy Wall Street people hated the capitalism part, and the the Tea Party people hated the cronyism part. But they they both did overlap in that sort of oh, everybody's you know part of the same club, and they're all making deals for their buddies. And you know, again, it's it reverges on the conspiratorial. I don't I don't think it was full on conspiracies, I, but I do think it was just a lot of the people in charge saw things the same way, and that reinforces itself. You know, and, and that's that's how we get that disconnect because they were all seeing things the same way in the center, as as Gurry calls it. But everybody else was starting to see things differently. And you get that on trade, you get that on other things, you know, like when whenever the two parties have a consensus on something, but the people don't, there there's a problem. It's gonna blow up. And that's how it, I mean it, in twenty sixteen it blew up with trade. You know, I mean you had you had yeah. Bernie on the left and Trump on the right both saying, you know, that these trade right. deals are rotten. And then you had, you know, Bush and Clinton in the middle saying that they were good. So, like I said, the populism angle of it was not a left or right thing. It was just an, an ins or outs thing. And it, you know, sort of depended where you stood between that. And, and I think more lately, just the sort of the course of the wars and just the sort of endless fighting over there that had sort of the same effect on this that Vietnam had in its day. And it, it's not as bad as Vietnam, certainly in terms of its how many men we've lost, but just the, the sort of diminishment of authority, like all of the authority that the armed forces and the defense department establishment had built up after the Persian Gulf War. You know, when we rolled in there and, and whipped them in like a month, you know, hardly lost anybody, liberated the country. It was all good. We went home. They, you know, that really redeemed them a lot in people's eyes. Wow, the military, they can do anything. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, we're still in Afghanistan 20 years later. I, I, I think that has had, gradually the same effect as the 08 crashes did you know i mean it it's just that when somebody puts themselves at the center of it and says we're in charge we have the best things the scientific management we know how to do it and then they completely screw it up like this week we we see in cuba they're they're marching in the streets and part of the catalyst of this supposedly is not getting vaccines out to the people you know they just you know for all the 
people, you know, you hear socialists talk about how Cuba's got the free healthcare, they've got this many doctors and such and such, but they can't get shots in arms. You know, we at least did that right. But the people are in the street about it because you know it's a, it's finally another uh, chip at the at the pedestal. You know, it says, look, this authority that is claiming so much power, it, look, they're not even doing anything right. They can't get it done. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's that's your populist anger right there. Yeah, he has a great example of if you guys remember a few years ago that that climate change, that group of scientists, climate change scientists. I forgot the group, what it was called or whatever, but they some of their email traffic was was revealed and, and shared with the public, and it showed it basically revealed that a lot of the stuff that they were saying wasn't really actually backed up by evidence. But they were so sure of their conclusions that they didn't want the pub, you know, they didn't, they didn't trust the public to have, you know, the full information and they didn't really want to share their evidence. And it's kind of like so much, I mean, while I was reading this, again, this was written in 2014, but the undermining of expertise and what I'm kind of, I always joke as the death of expertise, I think is just on full display this past year with COVID and some of our some of the leading epidemiologists and big thinkers and experts and those who are running the institutions and they just flat out got it wrong over and over again. And okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Trump has, um, deserves some blame and he certainly does, but he's not the one, he's not, he's not the one at the CDC who came out and said, master worthless. Don't try to get a mask. You know, don't, don't take masks from the hospitals need them for other things. And then have do a complete about face and say, Everybody needs to wear a mask. In fact, we <laughs> probably need to double the mask. We need to we need to have two yeah. layers. And uh, he's you know it's not it wasn't Trump who was saying uh, this thing is highly contagious. You should stay six feet away from people at all times and wear a mask at all times. Otherwise, you're putting yourself and the country at great great peril perilous risk. But oh, if you're out there protesting or rioting for social justice. Yeah. Well, that's okay then, (laughs) you know, like over and over again. And the CDC got it completely wrong and, and, uh, didn't move quickly on testing and said, we didn't need to test. And then said, okay, actually we do need to test. And then, you know, at, at, at every stage, the, the elites, the people in charge, the experts, they just, they lost everyone's trust. I mean, I, I, I mean the CDC, I'm really glad they did, but about three, four weeks ago, I guess it's a little over a month now, just came out and said that those people who've been vaccinated don't need to wear a mask anymore. Of course, I'm glad for that. I'm vaccinated. I'm glad not to wear a mask. At the same time, for the last nine months, they've been saying the reason you're wearing a mask is not so much to protect you, but to protect those around you. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, so it's kind of like, okay, well, I guess. And, and at first we said, mm-hmm. if you've been vaccinated, you can pass the disease still. Then it was like, if you're vaccinated, Maybe you don't pass the fact, you know, and just this the past week, there was more conversation about, well, I don't know if the school's going to open again because maybe you can <laughs> like <sighs> who can trust these guys at all. I mean, I personally don't trust a dang thing. You know, the Wuhan lab, like first that's racism, that's xenophobia. It never in a million, you know, people are only saying this because of their fascist, you know, uh, racist hatred for, for Asian people is why they might say that, uh, that the disease originated in the Wuhan lab. By the way, there's three labs in the world that study these bat diseases, including COVID. Yeah. One's in North Carolina, one's in Texas, 
And what do you know? The other one's in Wuhan, China. <laughs> what are the chances? And uh, oh, but now now that Trump's out, I guess it's like right. okay, well, it, it doesn't. It, we're not going to take away from blaming him if we have this conversation. And the evidence is starting to mount. So maybe we should say, okay, well, maybe it's not racist to say we still don't <laughs> think that it came from Wuhan lab. But you know, yeah, the dam, the dam, the dam's starting to break on that one too. I mean, even you know, they, people are. I think they they polled that said uh, there was a poll that said more than half the people believe in the lab leak theory now, and because it, it makes sense. You oh know? yeah, uh, John Stewart said it on the Stephen Colbert show and uh, made all the made all his fans uncomfortable. I mean, even if it didn't, like, like we're not here to start conspiracy theories. I, I personally believe that it's overwhelmingly likely that it did uh, originate with the Wuhan lab. But even if it didn't, I mean, again, it's just it's just the undermining these these elites, these experts, quote unquote, just continually undermine themselves by, by making these hard and strong and fast pronouncements. And, and, you know, the same with the, the, with, I mean, I, I always thought you and I've talked about this many times. There's, there, there are plenty of things to plenty of areas or instances where we can criticize Trump, but yet there was still this, this just frothing at the mouth obsession about about Trump and Russia to the point where these stories are just completely created out of whole cloth. And, um, you know, and you have the experts, the CIA experts who spent their career in the CIA coming out and saying, this is definitive proof. And then it's mm-hmm. like, oh, actually it's not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's the, that's, the, that's the same kind of destruction of authorities because you go out there and you make a pretty bold claim, you know, like the media made this pretty bold claim that Trump was in bed with Russia and it was all going to come out in the Mueller report. And then the Mueller report came out and there was nothing. Yeah. (laughs) But they, but like the same with the financial crisis, nobody apologized. There was nobody in the press who's like, boy, we screwed up. Didn't we? Mm, We got in over our skis. I mean, and, and on the other side for our, like for Iraq, I think it's the same thing is true. Like we had uh, a vice president say that we're going to be greeted as liberators. We're going to be in there, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, in and out and we're done. And, uh, you know, many years later, uh, you know, a decade later, 15 years it took to, to get in and out and WMD was never found because it was never there and all these different things. So. Yeah. The lack of humility, I think, really bothers people, too. I mean, the, a little contrition might go a long way, but it, it doesn't happen. And it's like he says here, it was a total bankruptcy of the elites. Only the public paid the bill. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's a good way. That's how, that's how it works with bankruptcy. You don't pay it yourself. Somebody else does. So. You get that, and you. I I think this book, because uh, it was like you said, it's written in 2014. But he he kind of got out ahead of this because he was, and he connects the uh, this the uprisings that were happening in the Middle East and in Europe to a lesser extent the, the sort of protests after the uh, after the financial crash. And I, I heard him on a on a podcast recently, and it's you know just saying it it it's a straight line straight through. You know, it's the same thing and these things couldn't have happened like the uh the cdc stuff you know that you were talking about with them saying oh don't go out you know you can go into protests but don't go you know don't go out but do go out but you know only if it's you know all that confusion would not have been exposed under the old monolithic media right but right. now but but now you've got a, anybody out there can take one tweet from a month ago take a picture of it hold it next to another tweet tweet the two pictures out be like oh what's the difference I mean, so many people in the media would, you know, when there was a college football game, team, you know, won their homecoming or something, there'd be people out in the streets celebrating, you know, mass together. And then, you know, these 
reporters up in New York would be wringing their hands. Oh, it's gonna it's gonna spread. And then the next month there'd be a BLM riot. And they'd, yeah. Oh well, you know, this, the people are letting their voices be heard, man. You know, it's, it's, it's freedom. It's so it's the same thing. The virus doesn't know why you're out there. But I think that wouldn't have gotten exposed as much, and the the hypocrisy would not have gotten exposed as much in a more industrial era media. But just everything being shattered now, it it does make it hard for people at the center to hide their failures. He talks about how. Uh, when John Kennedy first came to office and they did the Bay of Pigs invasion, totally screwed it up. Those guys got killed or captured, all of them. Uh, it was a big, big disaster. We were going to liberate Cuba. Yeah, it was going to be nice. But he barely sent any guys down there with no air cover. Total screw up for an inexperienced president. Uh, today, they'd be uh, nailing them to the wall. But the press covered for him. He told some pretty bold-faced lies about it. Uh, oh, you know, <laughs> we, we weren't really behind it. You know, we, we support their effort, of course. But... It was a CIA operation, you know, and yeah, good idea. We should have liberated Cuba from Castro. It would have been great, but we didn't do it right. And we messed it up. And, you know, the press had Kennedy's back and, you know, that could have been the end of him, but his approval rating went up because everybody at the center was on his side. Right. You could not do that today. If Joe Biden did that today, we'd be all over him and that there would, his approval rating wouldn't go up. That's for sure. You know, like Kennedy's went up 10 points. It, there's not that, you don't have that ability. The press would try to cover for him still, but right, right. it just can't work anymore. The monopoly's <laughs> gone. And so that much is for the better, but it also means there's more of this constant churn from outside of just tearing it all down that uh, it's kind of exhausting and confusing. And it, it it does pose a threat to the system, the fact that there is no... There is no stability. There's always this million sources of information, which is, should make us smarter, but really just makes us more confused and, and narrow-minded. Yeah. So we said that this book was written in 2014, and so he's very prescient in many ways. He also came back for uh, and added a chapter, uh, an epi- another epilogue, sort of a, now that Trump's been elected, how does, how does my book stand up? And, and essentially he was like, Looks like it stands up pretty good, <laughs> but he says, <laughs> yeah. the question is how, you know, same question that all the elites have been asking and continue to ask, how could a man like Donald Trump win the presidency in the United States of America? And so here's what his answer is. The why of Trump's election is simple enough. Trump was chosen precisely because of, not despite his shortcomings, a candidate that innocent of qualifications, basically uh, uh, bereft of qualifications and political direction can be elected only as a gesture of supreme repudiation by the electric of the governing class. And this is something that uh, many, um, you know, interesting folks like Mike, Ta- Mike Taibbi and others uh, make the point con- consistently over and over again. In 2016, the Core Trump voters, we're talking about the primary voters, and you and I, uh, I read a book where we were talking about the the primary voters, um, alienated mm-hmm. America, and the their second choice was not, the, the core Trump voters in the primary, their second choice was not Ted Cruz, their second choice was Bernie, mm-hmm. and how could that, how in the world could that be? And it's again, I think uh, Gurry here is kind of pulling the threads together between the Tea Party, for example, and Occupy Wall Street, which, as he said, are basically the 
the beast in the other's nightmare. <laughs> but at the same time, they're closer there to sharing the same views of the world than they think. And a guy like Trump is chosen as just a, a, a huge middle finger, you know, to all that we've just been talking about, the financial crisis, Iraq, the, you know, all of the, you know, climate, the, the, the climate change lying, the fact that Obama won a Nobel Peace Prize for just, just for awesomeness and, and no accomplishments whatsoever, you know, and like the, just the failure over and over again of the elites. And he had, a, he had a great line here that I feel, I feel like was extremely insightful and, and a condemnation of us. He says, uh, the elites and the institutions they inhabited had never made much of a case for themselves beyond prosperity and they failed on their own terms. And, and I really think that the critique of trade, which I think you, sh- you shared, um, some, some of that same, uh, dis, uh, distaste or you know, disappointment in trade, like the, mm-hmm. the promise of trade was the prosperity. And I, I would argue that's been delivered, but you can see myriad ways where it actually hasn't and where people are left behind or left in the wreckage. And, you know, it's like, if that's what the elites and the institutions are promising, and then they turn around and, and uh, blow the economy up in 2008, or they turn around and, you know, put us into a forever war in the Middle East, you know, Mm -hmm. that's why he's, his argument is that's why Trump won. He says the party establishment, quote unquote establishment. And look, everyone, I'm, as close as you can get to, you know, knowing the quote unquote establishment, uh, for, at least for the Republican party, it, it doesn't exist. There isn't one. And so he, he says the party quote unquote establishment under any description had cracked to pieces long before Trump arrived. Only the word remained like an incantation. Jeb Bush's risable impersonation of an establishment champion only proved the point. Bush lacked a following, barely had a pulse at the polls and could claim nothing like an insider's clout. He'd been out of office for nine years. The Republican worthies who endorsed him had been out of office for an average of 11 years. If this once had been the party's establishment, it was now a clack of political corpses. And I mean, that's pretty damning, but it's also pretty accurate. At this point, there really is no establishment. And he kind of was, I mean, he, he probably was a good example of kind of the the last gasp of, of establishment. Yeah, I, I- Absolutely. And that's kind of like what you look at the Democrats house leadership too. It's all, yeah, right, right. All, all geriatrics, you know, did their thing in the seventies and have been coasting on it ever since it's, it's a, there's a hollowness that still needs to be sorted out. And, you know, Trump got in on the, the drain, the swamp thing for that very reason, because people weren't looking at it at Washington as, you know, a, a valuable wetland full of, you know, creatures and, and, natural habitats it was a swamp and it needed to get drained and and if it the prosperity point's interesting um i think that that these things that that all of the culture war really started when america got prosperous broadly prosperous not just a few people that that says something about the nature of prosperity and that it doesn't fill every void in our lives in some ways it drives out things that were there before but that's uh that's something i think we're going to that's a big test of this generation is what are we going to do about that? Because even if we get jobs back, even if we get growth, even if people are making more money, the people who did these protests that he talks about in the book were the ones 
in the middle class. They were the ones often with jobs. So they're still mad. And I guess it's the uh, the test of the coming generation to find out, is there a way that they to make them happy again with government? He, he says part of the problem is that they, people, a lot of the people protesting were both mad at the government's failures and thought the government could fix everything for them. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's the problem is that we yeah. set up this utopian government. We set up this exactly. government that's going to get into all your problems and fix them. Yeah, he has a great line. He has a great line where he says, when the elites fail, fail, the, the public has no choice but to turn to the elites. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. That's a la- That's a good last word. My last word is, uh, he has. Uh, he doesn't give us a lot of hope at the end of this book, or even throughout the middle of it, or the beginning at any time, because he's essentially saying we're waiting for the next thing to overthrow and the revolution to complete. But ascent, but actually, what we should expect is just a, con- a muddling through with no conclusion. And he he likens it to two hundred years ago. If if somebody had come in a time machine to today from two hundred years ago and asked us who won the who won the battle between the Protestants and the Catholics, our answer would be like. Uh, neither i mean <laughs> kind of yeah. didn't work that way i mean it's kind of moved on there were other issues and you're like oh really i mean because that was such a hot topic you know it was so central to their lives at that point and us right now is like so central how to, how to work out with trump like well i it just muddled through and <laughs> and and we moved on to something else so all right that's gurry catch us next time